Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This is Daniel Lee from Fuller Seminary, where I direct the Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry. In this episode, I will share some reflections regarding the struggle for black lives from an Asian American Christian perspective. I hope these reflections encourage you toward a deeper discipleship to our living Savior. Black lives matter. Black lives matter to God. What does it mean to witness to that statement, to witness to that truth as Asian American Christian? That's the reflection that I wanted to kind of give in this episode. And also because I wanted to clarify a lot of misunderstandings that I think really are problematic. So the first idea that I want to start with, which is actually where I always start, is I always start with God. The question is, who is our God? What kind of a God do we have? That actually will determine everything in our faith. It will determine everything in terms of how we think about any issue in life. The reason why I say this is because some people have said, you know, this protest for black lives, it is not a theological issue. It's a cultural issue. And that's very, very problematic, right? Because you're saying, well, I want to think about this separated from God. And so let me tell you what it means to start with Understanding who God is. God that's witness to us in Scripture. First idea is this. That God is a God of the covenant. Which basically means God enters space and time, like in history, and interacts with a particular group of people. Like God is not a, a kind of an abstract idea, right? Abstract idea or abstract set of morals. That's a profound misunderstanding of God of, God of the Bible. In, in the God of the Bible, as Blaise Pascal uh, who's actually a French mathematician and physicist, but he was also a devout Christian. Pascal basically said, our God is a God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not a God of philosophers. It's not like some first principle, right? Some greater idea. That's not the God of Scripture. We have a God who enters time and space in the political uh, situation that God's people find themselves in, in the social, cultural, economic context, and God meets them there. God saves people in that context when we read scripture. That's really profoundly important because if with that idea, then we can say, oh, you know, God entering time and space and God caring about our particular historical context, our political context, that's actually that's actually exactly what we find in scripture. Right? These things aren't blind to God. God cares what empire people are crushed under. <laughs> Right? Who who are the oppressors? God cares about these things when we scripture. Now we might be like, well, I think American evangelicalism kind of has sometimes reduced scripture into certain ideas, but that's not what we see in scripture. God is a God of the covenant, and that, which basically means God is a God of history and politics and and particular economic situations that people find themselves in. Second idea is the fact that God is a God of creation, which basically means. God was incarnated as a particular man, right? Which basically talks about the covenant as a Jewish man, first century Palestinian Jew. But like God took on creation, and we talk about resurrection being fundamentally a key component of what it means to be saved. God is not here to save souls, God is God saves bodies as well. That's basically why we can't actually have a colorblind theology to say, well, look, we're all just talking about people here, right? All people. No, 
particular bodies matter because that's basically part of you know that's basically part of God's salvation. Bodies matter, souls matter. God is a God of creation, and also God is a God of kingdom. God is a kingdom. Christ came to proclaim God's reign over all aspects of life, and the fact that Christ came saying that wait a minute, their powers and principalities are ruling the world. And God's gonna be here taking it back. He's gonna He's gonna rule over, right? There's a kingdom clash that's happening. There's a real conflict, and Christ brings a sword because there are uh, ruling powers that has to be thwarted, that has to be uh, toppled. So this idea of the fact that well, you know, Christ just if we believe in Jesus, then we're all just gonna get along. That's just profoundly mistaken because that's not how the Bible talks about this. There's actually all this conflict that Christ brings because um, the norms of this world are faulty, and God's uh, and Christ comes to bring about a kingdom conflict to rule over, right? To bring about Christ's kingdom. So with this in mind, I mean, I think the more fundamental issue is the fact that God's a living God. God's not dead. It's not like God went on vacation and left us with the Bible. I think some people think that way. Like, oh, here's scripture. As though God's not working. That God's not saying specific things to specific people. In Revelation 2, it talks about, you know, if you have, if you have ears, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I mean, the Spirit of Christ is saying stuff to the churches, and God, you know, the Spirit of Christ is doing stuff in the world. Uh, what does it mean to discern that, to pay attention to that? I mean, obviously, that is a difficult task. And, but, it, it, you know, it doesn't mean the fact that we can avoid it because God's alive and God's doing things. So that's actually what we, where we start. When we think about anything, we, we want to we remember who God is and the fact that particular social, political, economic situation that we find ourselves in that's where God meets us, and that's how God has always met us. The biblical God, the God's witness in Scripture, has always met us in these situations. So the first idea is that we start with God, and it's properly understanding who God is. The second idea that I think is really important to understand is that, uh, you know, this is a misunderstanding that people have. I mean, people, people are saying, well, you know, this is not a race problem, it's a sin problem. And I think it's really interesting the fact that Jesus, when he casts out demons, he names them. Like, he, he's, he asks, what is the name? Why do, you, why do you care about naming the demon, right? I think it's very important to properly name a demon because naming something gives you power biblically. So naming what the problem is properly is really, really important. What is the demon in this context? In Ephesians 6, it talks about our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And this is basically how I want to think about this. I mean, uh, you know, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's about powers and principalities. But these, the spiritual fight rages in this world, and it manifests itself in our laws, in our media representation, in our educational system, in our histography, in our theological education. It's, and it's the problem of racism, but it's not general racism, right? It's a particular thing. Because sometimes when we say racism, I think we can think about it as like, you know, interpersonal thing, like, you know, uh, kind of an interpersonal prejudice, right? But we're talking about 
the most precise way of understanding this racism, as you know, is actually, and everybody's been mentioning this thing, it's actually white supremacy, white privilege. I mean, there's so many different names for it. White privilege, white supremacy, whiteness, a white normativity. You have to understand this historically, right? That in order to protect white rule, there was this way of kind of defining races, right, in the U.S. And this goes back like 400 years. So, that's basically what we're fighting. It's not just generic racism. Talking about sin in a broad way isn't really helpful at all because we're not talking about racism within individuals, but racism within, you know, racism as whiteness or white normativity within systems, within powers, within cultures that's deeply embedded in the very core of the nation. This whiteness, basically, it impacts all racial minorities differently, including Asian Americans, but it falls upon uh, black bodies in an exceptionally egregious manner, right? So when we're saying the names of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or, or Ahmaud Arbery, you know, Arbery and so many others, we're talking about so many others that, 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 that we can't even mention throughout the hundreds of years, Right, and it's not just generic racism; it's a particularly whiteness or white normativity or white privilege or, or, or white supremacy. Right, it's it's a particular thing that we're trying to name properly here, and because of that, it's um, I mean, it's like we're in a boat that's called white normative, and it's sailing. And so in that sense, all of us are, are complicit, all of us are guilty, unless you very explicitly name it and fight it. It's not really about treating other people well. That's actually a misunderstanding, right? There's a, there's a research that came up, uh, you know, and it's, it's around, but I think people don't know about it, that uh, many multi-ethnic churches are actually making things worse for, for, you know, in terms of racism and not making it better. Because people think, well, look, isn't that what the solution is? Just having multi-ethnic churches, multi-racial churches. Basically, uh, you know, a lot of the research is showing the fact that what ends up happening with many multi-racial churches is that this white normative culture in these multi-racial churches don't really go away. Because in order to actually attract white people, you have to basically make it palatable for them to stay because white people have so many different choices than people of color. So, so many multiracial churches end up kind of putting the burden upon people of color and you have to cater to whiteness in a sense. And so in that sense, they're actually not making it better, multiracial churches. They're actually making the situation worse sometimes. What they're finding in the research is that people of color in, in uh, multiracial churches kind of become more oblivious to structural racism, right? They think everything's individualistic, right? Because that's basically what these churches kind of proclaim. I mean, this just shows you how deep the problem is, that the fact that, you know, even having multi-ethnic churches or multi-racial churches isn't going to solve the problem. We have to actually name the problem properly, right? And it's actually this, you know, whiteness that's actually embedded in our systems, in our power, in, you know, in our culture, in every facet of our nation. If we understand that properly, then we can address the problem. So starting with God as the first idea, right? What kind of a God we have and how we understand God. 
And uh, second idea uh, is how we understand what the problem is and to accurately or to uh, properly name the demon we're talking about and how in so many ways the racism we're talking about uh, you know, works implicitly, unconsciously, that we internalize it, we, we perpetuate it, we spread it without even knowing it. And this is, you know, the studies on implicit bias has shown us so much, the fact that it literally just bypasses our our volition. This is just happening all over. And, and so uh, to understand that properly is really, really important. And I think the third thing, I want to basically say, well, what does it mean to support black Americans as Asian Americans? You know, a lot of people have talked about the fact that Asian Americans have, have to repent of our complicity in, in this whiteness. Absolutely. And the anti-blackness in our community. Yes, absolutely. Right. But I think one of the things that I think is important for Asian American Christians to understand is the fact that we need to actually be allies of, of black Americans as Asian Americans and not just like, you know, uh, pseudo like honorary white people with white guilt. Right, and trying hard to be like honorary black. That's not who we are. You never want allies who don't understand who they are because that's actually very dangerous. Like, and the problem for many Asian American Christians is that we have no idea what Asian American history is, what Asian American identity is. You know, we don't know about 50 years of, many of us don't know about 50 years of Asian American movement, Asian American studies. The fact that 50 years ago, right, Asian Americans, there were a liberation front you know, was influenced by Black Panthers and Black Power Movement and said, look, we need to figure out who we are and have our own movement, right? Because that's actually, and even as we support Black lives back then, 50 years ago, we need to understand ourselves, right? That's what we did. And a lot of Asian Americans don't know that. So we think, well, you know, all of us are basically honorary white people, pseudo white people trying to be, I'm like, well, look, we need to really understand historically what our Asian American history is. And the fact that, I mean, that's a long history of like Asian American activists, right? And, and, and Asian Americans kind of fighting for justice. I mean, you know, often it was actually for themselves, soon the government for injustice. But, you know, there were other people like, you know, Fred Kodematsu or Patsy Mick or Larry Ityong or, or Grace Lee Boggs or Yuri uh, Kochiyama or Helen Zia. There are so much others, others who've come before us. I think uh, without knowing these people, without knowing this history, we think we're we're like you know trailblazers. When in fact, like, I mean, we're like we're we're really behind. Like with all these people who basically made these trails and who are elders, but we often ignore that, and that's really really unfortunate because we end up misrepresenting ourselves and misunderstanding who we are. Now, does this mean the fact that oh you know Asian Americans are we're down with the people and we don't have any complicity? No, it doesn't mean that. I'm just saying, look, it's important for us to figure out who we are because otherwise we're literally like flying blind. We don't know where we fit. And, and, and I think it's important for Asian Americans to understand the fact that often because of the black and white binary paradigm, we are left out or we're erased from the conversation. So as much as I would say, I mean, obviously, I, I fully believe the fact that Asian Americans are complicit. But we are also victims of the system as well. The fact that we're erased and, you know, our, 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 um, our educational system, our culture often erases Asian Americans. I mean, often people have discussions about race and Asian Americans are just not included. So when you're excluded so often, you don't know how to enter the discussion. And that's not literally our fault. So 
I think that dimension has to be remembered. The fact that we have to know ourselves and we have to know the fact that we're suffering from the system as much as we're complicit as well. I think that dimension is really, really important. Yeah, so for so many Asian Americans, these powers and principles of kind of whiteness feeds us lies through our educational system, through our media, even through our churches to some degree, right? And we've internalized uh, these messages and uh, we've kind of erased ourselves, right? Saying that there's nothing, no such thing as Asian American identity or our Asian American identity does not matter. And that's really, really problematic. And without knowing ourselves properly, for us to do long-term kind of ally work, that'll be very, very difficult. You know, one of the things that we see in terms of um, this power, right, powers and principalities of kind of racism in terms of this whiteness is that it works to divide and conquer people of color. So as much as it kind of renders Asian Americans invisible, and it raises this long history of solidarity between black and Asian communities. Now, you know, we know, you know, situations like LA riots, and we know the fact that there are situations all throughout the country where there were conflict between black and Asian communities, but that's not the only narrative, right? That's not the only narrative, and that's not the only part of our history we have. Frederick Douglass opposed Racist Immigration Act. Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first racist immigration act, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, Frederick Douglass opposed that, right? Because he wanted to support like Asians, right? Um, the fact that, you know, as I mentioned before, the Asian Americans learned from black protest movements 50 years ago, right? That Asian Americans marched with MLK. All the work the civil rights movement did in terms of uh, passing the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, that was instrumental in passing the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, right? And so many of Asian Americans at this time kind of uh, came f- is, is of that generation, right? The Hart-Seller Act or the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. How Jesse Jackson supported the protest for, you know, Vincent Chen. I mean, all the Asian American activist organizations, like, you know, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, or all the Asian American scholars I mean, all of them, they're racially aware. So they absolutely support Black Lives and they've been doing it for a long time because they know what the problem is. It's just that so many Asian American Christians aren't connected to Asian American studies, nor do they often know, even know about Asian American justice movements, right? And that's really sad because we, our narrative ends up being that Asian Americans are passive and we don't do anything. And that's just nonsense. Like, there are all these people, Asian American scholars and Asian American activists who's, who's been doing this work for the last 50 years. Just because you don't know about it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, I always say this right now because it's really irritating. I hear this all the time. These people say, well, look, Asian Americans, you know, we just don't protest. That's not our culture. I'm thinking to myself, like, have you been to Asia? Like, that's just nonsense, right? I mean, that's not... Uh, not being, not protesting is not an Asian cultural thing. I mean, people protest in Asia all the time, right? So I don't know. That's actually kind of, kind of like this Orientalist stereotype that's been fed to Asian Americans, and we kind of say, oh, you know, the nail that sticks out will get hammered down, so we're all quiet. I'm like, well, apparently, tell that to people in Asia because they're protesting all the time and they have a long history of protests. So that that we should not be mentioning that. That is just absolutely falsehood that we a lot of Asian Americans kind of perpetuate which is just nonsense so we talked about what kind of a guy we have we talked about what the nature of the problem is we talked about what does it mean to be 
an Asian American um, entering this space and, and being allies for black lives. Uh, what I wanted to, the fourth point here, what I wanted to talk about uh, was um, the problem of kind of cheap peace and superficial kind of reconciliation. And people have said this. People have said, look, it's not about politics. And I find it really humorous uh, because um, it, I was thinking back to like MLK, right? And uh, um, it, when you think about MLK, it wasn't like he was... Uh, he was marching, you know, and the civil rights leaders were marching so that people can be saved. People are like, oh, it's not political. Um, you know, what we really need is for everybody to be saved. I'm like, well, I mean, back then, everybody was saved. They were all Christians. It was actually white Christians who were basically killing black people. And that's actually, I mean, a lot of people, that's happening right now. This is not about conversion, right? We mistake what the problem is because we think... If people were just say it'll solve the problem, but so many Christians are the ones who are still racist, right? Who basically support this white uh, racist ideology. So um, it's to understand the fact that um, it is political, right? It is political because gospel, once again, impacts everything. It, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't leave cultural or economics or politics out. The politics have to change as well. The laws have to change as well. Um, uh, I recall that you know when the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was formed, their motto was to save the soul of America. It wasn't saving the soul of individual people. It was a soul of America as a whole nation. And that's basically how we want to understand this thing. We want to understand the whole nation and how it has to change, not just individual people. There is actually this vital connection between in theology, between the doctrine of justification and justice, right? These aren't mutually exclusive. They're actually, they're, they're actually connected together in a profound way in the sense that justification has to do with having kind of a rightness or right relationship with God, with ourselves, and with the world, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about in terms of justice, making make sure that there's a right relationship with each other and with the world as well, right? So it's not as though when we talk about the gospel, it, it's actually disconnected in any way from, from justice we're talking about. Andrew Sung Park, in, in, in his book, um, who's a Methodist theologian, um, who's actually done some really good work, actually, in terms of even racism and, and uh, talking about uh, uh, what, the, what the meaning of the gospel is. In, in his book, Try New Atonement, he talks about how Christ's healing is not only for sinners, but for victims and the whole world as well. So he talks about atonement for sinners and oppressors, right? The cross of Christ exposes sin, violence, and evil, how the cross kind of um, brings about righteousness and kind of challenges people to repent, but it also offers forgiveness as well, right? It's not like, it's not just about forgiveness. There is a challenge to repent and, and, and to, uh, and to uh, live out the kingdom values that, that Christ is proclaiming. Now, some people say, well, look, you know, we don't want to put our hopes in laws. We need the gospel. And, you know, theologically, we know that law doesn't save, that grace does. But in theology, there's this idea of the civil use of the law, right? Uh, the laws, you know, and God's laws point us to Christ, shows us how we really need God. It, it's also a way in which they, they talk about that, the first use of the law. Um, and the third use of the law 
is called like the normative use, which is basically a way for us to express our love for God, right? But the second use is a civil use in terms of restraining us from evil. Now, I mean, you know, when MLK was marching, he was actually saying we need the laws change because even if the hearts of people can't change, there has to be a way in which to restrain evil. And that's basically why, you know, it's not as though we put our hope in laws and politics and not God, but we're saying in order for us to be faithful, we need to work toward changing laws and doing political work so that justice can be proclaimed and it can be that our nation can actually properly administer justice and punish evildoers and restrain people from evil. Because without any kind of consequences, people just end up committing evil and uh, there's nothing to curb that. There's nothing to restrain people from committing evil. This is actually one of the reasons why it, it's so important to be politically active. It's important to vote, right? It's important to vote for people who care about black lives and local elections and national elections. That all matters. And that's actually a faithful responsibility from my perspective as Christians, right? The fact that we not only think about, you know, moral issues or whatever, but we also think about what kind of justice is this candidate going to bring about, right? And do we, do we kick people out who are basically promoting or perpetuating kind of uh, injustice, right? That work of voting, of supporting, of campaigning, all that stuff, I think is proper, faithful Christian discipleship. You know, I've been thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. because so many people quote him, but they don't read him. And one of the things that he says is that... Uh, he says the moderates who are sympathetic to the sufferings of uh, African Americans but don't approve the protests, who talk about cheap peace and superficial reconciliation, he basically said they are the greatest stumbling block to justice and to black lives. I mean, people who are sympathetic but like, oh, let's not get carried away. Or people who say, oh, it's a, it's a heart issue, it's a sin issue, who profoundly misunderstand what the problem is, who basically call for let's not disturb the peace let's you know let's it's it's all get along i mean who talk about racial reconciliation without talking about racial justice they are the greatest stumbling blocks to justice to god's justice and, and to black lives so this passage in book of amos that's quite popular that uh, mlk quite quoted right martin Luther king jr quoted this passage where, you know, this, this section where he says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. Now, if you read that whole passage, it's a passage, like, let me paraphrase that passage for you because it's, it's really profound. It's actually Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. And I'm going to paraphrase it so that it kind of comes alive. I think from, and I, when I think about this thing, kind of just, I find the joy thing. So, Amos 5, 21. It says, I hate, I despise your quiet times, Bible studies, and prayer meetings, your early morning prayers that are stenched to me. Even though you bring me personal commitments and times of devotion, even your sacrificial giving, I will not accept them. Though you bring service projects and mission, mission trips, your works of evangelism, I have no regard for them. Away with the praise songs, I will not listen to the music of your guitars and keyboards. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-fading stream. Now, within context, man, this idea of justice rolling like a river, 
That is an incredible critique upon spiritual lives. People who over-spiritualize the problem and don't get to the work of justice and righteousness. What does it mean for us as an Asian American Christian community to be faithful, to witness the truth that black lives matter and that black life matters profoundly to God? 